many times people will kind of skirt the facts and just say it's not worth the effort and run the risk if it's if it's one person but legally anytime you have a passive investor even if it's one person you're supposed to comply with the securities laws this is the everything real estate investing show with sean pan where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips tricks and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals and now Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Jeff Love. Jeff is a partner at Gibbs Gidden, Attorneys at Law, who focuses on real estate transactions. In this episode, Jeff will clarify a lot of my questions about real estate law and will let us know what to do to stay out of trouble with the SEC. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. Enjoy. All right, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and what do you do? Uh, I'm Jeff Love. I am a real estate and corporate transactional attorney down in Los Angeles. And my practice touches on all areas of real estate. We cross all different asset classes, retail, multifamily, industrial. We also have a corporate transactional practice that is related to real estate where we deal with a lot of uh, different joint ventures, financing mergers and acquisitions. And then on the side, I'm also a real estate investor myself, both as a passive investor through syndications and other investors. And I have a, my own real estate investment company where I invest in multifamily properties down in the South Bay of Los Angeles. Sounds like you're pretty involved. What part of Los Angeles do you work in? We're in Century City, right in the mid, mid city, right by the west side, Beverly Hills. Um, and I live down in Redondo Beach without traffic, about 20 minutes, but everyone knows LA traffic. With that, it's probably an hour and 20 minute drive. Wow. So you're near the Westfield Mall, right? Yes, we are. Okay. I used to live in Los Angeles for a couple of years, so I'm very familiar with that area. Yes. The Westfield Mall, they just did a big renovation, which is which is nice, beautiful mall. They just redid that. And a little bit further on the West Side, they're redoing the Mace Rich's old mall, West Side Pavilion, mm-hmm. which is going to be a big new creative office space, which is interesting to see. Exciting. So tell me about your journey. How did you get into real estate and real estate investing? I always wanted to get into real estate, uh, even in college. So I decided the best track for me was to go to law school so I could learn more about the legal side of it with really the intent, I think, to become a real estate developer one day, maybe practice law for a few years, get my feet wet, see how transactions work, and then go off and do things myself. Went through that whole process, went to law school, graduated about 10 years ago now uh, during the the downturn, and no one was hiring real estate lawyers or even transactional lawyers in general. So it was a difficult time, but I knew I wanted to do real estate. So instead of jumping into a different area of the law, like many of my colleagues were doing, I went in-house with two different companies, first a recycling scrap metal manufacturer, and then a real estate developer. And kind of stuck it out for a few years before I landed the position I'm at today, where I'm doing exactly what I'd wanted to do, which is real estate and corporate transactional law. So I get to see the the legal side of it. And then as I've kind of learned how investing and development works, I've started investing on my own and multifamily and with clients and third party syndicators and sponsors. Yeah, I'm sure you get a lot of connects just from working in your field as well. We do. We meet, you know, I have many different brokers we work with, developers. So one of the kind of fun aspects of our job is not just performing legal work, but putting parties together. We may have a client that is looking to lease a space and they need a good commercial real estate broker. And we have ones that we've worked with before that we're able to connect them to or connect a developer with a good insurance broker or, you know, I've had a few clients that have been very successful down the line. They need to know what they to do with their money. So I connect them with a financial advisor and it's it's very satisfying being able to put two people together and seeing how they can help each other. Nice. So this is my first time actually having a real estate attorney on the show and I have a lot of different questions for you. When you're writing a loan, especially for us up here in the Bay Area, we have multi-million dollar single family residential properties, okay? They're not even commercial buildings. And we do get partnerships, you know, we do write our JV agreements between parties. And we do raise funds for our deals. So as an attorney, when do we actually need an attorney to be involved in a process like that? It's a good question. And I, like many attorney answers, it depends. 
one is the sophistication of the sponsor and the person that's putting together the deal. Obviously, the more deals you've done, you may be more familiar with putting together a JV or looking at loan documents, being able to do diligence on a property yourself, where if it was your first deal, you may not be familiar with things. But what I would say is the number one thing when you're putting together a deal is to always have a good team in place. So whether that's your accountant, brokers, attorneys, attorneys are good to have around if and when you need them. If you don't have a question, you don't need to use them. But I'd always encourage new investors to form a relationship with an attorney that they trust and that they know is looking out for their best interest. Because sometimes if you get into, for example, you're buying a maybe a multifamily property in, in San Francisco and you discover that there may be an environmental issue or there's an issue with a tenant estoppel certificate. At that time to go out and get an attorney to look at it, you may be up, a, up against a hard deadline and you may not have that time. So if you have an attorney and your team in place from the get-go, even if you're not using them, you'll be a step ahead of the competition. And if you're writing these JV agreements, you know, especially if they're just amongst friends or amongst some limited partners, for the most part, they're probably going to be some rinky-dinky contract that you typed out on, on Word. When is a contract actually legitimate where you can go to court and say, hey, look, here's some documentation. Both parties have signed it. Does it need to be notarized? Like, how do you know when a contract is legit? When it deals with real estate, it has to be in writing. If it's a lease, you can get away with an oral contract if it's less than one year. But typically, anytime you're dealing with land, put it in writing. That's the first key point. Because if it's an oral contract, most likely it's not going to be enforceable. Once you get a written contract, as long as there's consideration, which means that there is value being exchanged between the parties and both parties execute the agreement, you can have a contract on a napkin and it will still be enforceable. The key is to know what terms you want to put in your contract. And that's when an attorney can add value, especially as you get into more complicated deals. If you're doing a syndication, when there's a, a promote, a preferred return, a specific waterfall structure, they can help you make sure that that is done properly so that you don't get into problems later on. So basically you need to turn to kind of go over your documentation and make sure that everything is spelled out very, very clearly uh, so that later on when you do reap the profits and you do the split, people aren't like, hey, how come you're getting more money, X, Y, Z, something like that. Exactly. That's one of the values that not only attorneys, but actually documenting things in general comes into play. So another example, if, if you were doing a syndication on a $3 million home in, in San Francisco, even if it's multifamily, you, you're going to want to put together a joint venture agreement, operating agreement, partnership, typical ones that are used. If you're raising money from outside investors, then you also get into securities laws. So an attorney can help make sure that you're doing everything properly from a security standpoint. They can help you with the real estate to make sure that you've not all your I's crossed all of your T's in terms of the purchase contract that there's no other third-party contracts you haven't looked at, the old owner didn't enter into a 10-year agreement with his tenant that you're not, you're not paying attention to. So depending on the deal, there are many different areas of the law that can be touched on. So if you're signing a contract, just go back on to clarify, as long as both people have read it and they have signed it, we're good to go. Like it's enforceable. Like it will hold up in a court of law. You don't need a notarized signature. You don't need a witness and like that. Put it in writing, consideration, and executed by both parties. Those are going to be your three key items. Typically, a notary is only used in certain circumstances. We use it a lot in California. When, whenever a document is recorded in the title records, it has to be notarized. And a lot of people do like to get agreements notarized because it is essentially a third-party witness. And it gives you a little more credibility that the signatures weren't forged. But in a court of law, even if your agreement was not notarized, it doesn't mean that it wasn't valid. And e-signature counts too, right? It does. Sounds good. Now, when it comes to raising money, I know that, especially with syndications, there's all this talk about 506B, 506C, raising from accredited investors and non-accredited investors. What if we're doing JV partnerships? Do we still need to have them be accredited or non-accredited? And do we have to create a PPM for the JV partnerships? It would depend on the joint venture partnership. So the kind of qualifying factor is is when you sell a security. And a security is when you sell an interest, whether equity or debt, in an entity where there is a passive investor. And that 
investor is relying on a third party manager, general partner to run the day-to-day operations. So if you and I created a, a joint venture between the two of us and we were both actively participating, the management operations, no, we're not selling a security, we're both actively involved. But if you were to buy a house, just start a joint venture and I put in money and I wasn't participating in it, I just wanted my rent check every month and you went out to the market and got other investors like me, now you've crossed over the line and you're selling a security and now you do need to comply with federal and state securities laws. Is there a limitation? Like what if it's only one passive investor? Many times people will kind of skirt the facts and just say it's not worth the effort and run the risk if it's if it's one person. But legally, anytime you have a passive investor, even if it's one person, you're supposed to comply with the securities laws. Interesting. So I guess the, the workaround is to have them do some small piece of the action and then you don't have to create uh, you don't have to create a PPM for this for the venture. Right. So the qualifying factor is, is, is you have passive investors and, and they're just relying on your expertise and your skill. And that's when you run in, into the need to comply with securities laws because you're selling a security. And it's a trade-off because when you're running the project, you may not want to have to rely on your passive investors. They may not have the skills and expertise that you as the sponsor have. So you say, you know what, it's worth it for me to comply with securities laws to be able to run the project myself. At the same time, if, if you had a partner that you've been working with or a small group of investors and you each were going to contribute in some small way to the success of the project, in that scenario, you could, you could avoid complying with securities because everyone is actively participating. No one is a passive investor. Okay. What if they come in as a second lien position? They're technically passive, right? But they're also in a second lien position. Do you still have to write a PPM for that? If it's a second lien that's going to you know, put a mortgage or in California, a deed of trust on the property, and they're purely a lender, then you're not selling a security. If you were raising money, as you might see in a public offering, a big public company, where you are actually issuing debt to many different investors and parties, and you're issuing notes, that is when you need to comply with securities laws. Your typical second lien position is just a lender. So if you're raising it on a debt position, but once equity is involved, that's when you need to create these PPMs. If it's all debt and you have multiple investors that are coming in and you're issuing debt to all of them, you're going to need to comply with securities laws. If it's one lender or the lender is actually syndicating the debt that's coming in, then it's going to be just like you went to Bank of America or Chase, an institutional lender, and they're putting a second deed of trust on the property. Well, there you're not actually selling a security. They're loaning you money that's being secured by a property. I see. You know, I do know some people who just create like 10 second positions and, you know, everyone gets a little chunk of that. That's probably not legit, right? You know, that that's going to be a gray area because it is a fine line between when you have a lender that's actually being secured by real estate and that's giving that's going to be a second, third or a 10th lien position on a property versus a company that's actually issuing debt as a way to raise money. Right. So it's great, right? It's gray area. It's a gray area. And that is a question that I, I hope those friends have consulted their attorneys to make sure that they've complied with everything that they need to. I see. Okay. Well, speaking of that, where are some places that investors get in trouble, but they don't even know they're breaking the law? If they do not comply with the securities laws is one that we just kind of touched on. And that does happen a lot because you may have a small deal where you and, you know, you're going to buy, you're going to buy again, a house in San Francisco and you go out and raise money from a small group of people. And you say, well, you know, it's only three or four investors and we're only raising $250,000. I don't need to comply with that. Now you've broken securities laws, you've issued securities without complying with the regulations. And while there may be no immediate penalty, what happens typically is the project may go sour, someone may lose money, and then one of your investors realizes you didn't comply with your securities laws, and they sue you for redemption, and they want all of their money back, and they would likely be successful. That's a big area. One of the areas I see a lot of investors make mistakes just kind of a general perspective is not having their team in place and kind of touched on that before is having that team in place lets you rely on other people with the expertise in areas that you may not have it. And one of the things that I've learned just as an investor myself is it's sometimes difficult to know what you don't know. 
you may think I bought 10 houses before I know what to do in a multifamily situation. But what you may not be aware of is in California, once you have over a certain number of units, by law, you have to have a fire extinguisher on the property. By law, you have to have a resident manager when you hit a certain number of units. And there are things that may not translate from single family homes to multifamily to industrial or retail that you just not might be aware of that having a good team in place would help you rely on. So if you do get burned by, say, a bad investor, what is the process of reporting them and getting your money back? Typically what it would do, the investor would come to the sponsor or the person in charge of the deal and say, you know, we lost money. I think you mismanaged it. I don't think you've done certain things properly. And I'd like to give my money back. Sponsor typically is going to argue against that and say, no, you know, it's just a bad deal. It's real estate. It's risky. And, you know, some investments don't work out. Just like you can invest in the stock market and a stock may go down. That's a risk of investing. Um, the, the kind of kicker there is, have you as the sponsor done everything legally that you are required to do? Did you comply with securities laws? Did you document everything um, in terms of risks? Did you honor your fiduciary duties to your investors and put the best interest of the company and the project ahead of your own? There, and there's no self-dealing and no fraud. And if you've done everything that you're supposed to do, then the investor would likely lose and chalk it up to you know unfortunate timing or just a bad deal. The risk is then when you as the sponsor have not done everything you're supposed to, and maybe you sold securities and you didn't comply with securities laws, then that investor might be able to engage an attorney and file a, a lawsuit for rescission, and you might be liable to refund their, their initial investment. And what is the cost for something like that? It could easily run into tens of thousands of dollars if you got into litigation. Normally, when you have demands like that, most of the time they're resolved through demand or settlement between the two parties and potentially their attorneys. But if it got into litigation, as with many other types of litigation, if there are experts, if people have to be deposed in depositions, you could easily run into the tens of thousands of dollars. So it has to be something significant that you lost to maybe even be worth it to go to an attorney to try to get your money back. It would be, but a lot of times, and this is something to be aware of, uh, when you're drafting documents is a lot of joint venture agreements have attorney's fees clauses, which means that the prevailing party is entitled to their attorney's fees. So if your joint venture agreement has an attorney's fees provision and your investor goes through this process and they said, you know, I'm going to spend $50,000 attorney's fees to win $50,000 and they go through that process. And if they are successful, now they've got a hundred thousand dollars because you're responsible for the damage and for their attorney's fees. Same holds true, vice versa. If they lost, they'd have to pay your attorney's fees costs. So it, it is a double-edged sword, but it's something to think about when you are putting an attorney's fees provision in a document, you think who is most likely to, to sue who, and is that something that I'm willing to, to pay for? So what are the cons to creating a PPM? You know, like it seems like everyone should do it if they're raising money, but I'm sure there's some downsides to it. The PPM is an expensive document and it's it's not always required. So when you go out and you raise securities from an investor, you've probably, and your listeners have probably heard the saying 506B and 506C and 505 and various different numbers. What these are, these are exemptions to the 1933 Securities Act. And they say that you don't need to register your offering with the SEC as Apple or, or WeWork was going to do and have an IPO, have a registered offering. If you fall into one of these exemptions, you can sell your securities privately with your investors. 506C is probably the most commonly used, and that allows you to raise money from accredited investors, unlimited amount of money, any stage you want. You can market your offering, you can advertise, but the key there to think about is that we're a credited investor. And that is an investor that meets certain financial thresholds. They've made $200,000 a year in income or $300,000 with their spouse, or they have over a million dollars in net worth, excluding their principal residence are the two that are most commonly relied upon. And those are typically which you think of as a sophisticated investor and the SEC lets you give less, less disclosures, less risk because they feel that those type of investors can look out for themselves better than someone that might not meet those thresholds.
So to get back to the PPM is depending on which of these exceptions you fall in, a lot of times investors or sponsors will prepare a private placement memorandum, PPM, to disclose to these investors, which kind of outline the risks of the investment, what the investment is, a summary of the terms, so that it's, everything is being disclosed to the investor. So if you're just raising money, like you said, you're only raising, let's say, $500,000 from your investors for a single family project in, let's say, Los Altos, Mountain View. It's not a significant amount of money, but the PPM still costs, what, like fifteen to $20,000? It's a little bit less. It's very, depending, again, depending on the attorney, how experienced they are in doing it. It's, but I'd say ten to 50000 is probably a fair range. And it really is a, a cost of the project. And it's not just the PPM, that document alone shouldn't cost that, but it's when you typically do a securities offering, you might have a private placement memorandum. You might have the joint venture operating agreement or partnership agreement that actually is the operating document for the company. You might have a subscription agreement, which is how investors actually subscribe for units or partnership interest in that entity. And then you have the actual filings that are done, usually a form D, which is a filing made with the SEC. And you also have filings in each state where your investors are located. So it's that whole package of documents that might get you up to that cost. If you were just doing joint venture part of it, or you just doing the filings, your cost would be less. And for the 506, 506C offering, you don't necessarily need a PPM. It's always a good practice and it protects you putting together the deal because that's where you disclose risks. And when your investor comes to you a year later and says, well, you never told me this could lose money or that there could be an earthquake and we don't have earthquake insurance. And you point to that PPM and you say, look, I disclosed all of the risks and you knew about that before investing. That's one of the risks. That's why it's a good practice. They're also a lot more common if you were relying on maybe 506B or 505 and you are selling to unaccredited investors that don't meet the accredited investor thresholds. Then that PPM, I think, becomes an even more important document because those types of investors are the ones that really need to do to see and understand the risks of the coming investment. And what are the repercussions if you do get found, I guess, at fault for not properly doing your, um, your structure? Well, this, the structure you can do, there's no right or wrong way to do the structure. If you didn't comply with securities laws, which is probably the, the biggest area where people do get into trouble, one is the investor can, can sue you for rescission and get their money back. So if the property was unsuccessful, like the company, or depending on how it's structured, maybe even as an individual could be liable for having to refund the money, which could be a big financial burden. The other issues are there, there are potential penalties and depending on the state, even criminal penalties, if you willingly do not comply with the various securities loss requirement under the 1933 act or under each state securities act and all 50 states have the, have their own securities laws as well. Is there also something like you can't raise funds ever again or something like that too? What, what happens a lot is if you found to violate it, you know, depending on the, the severity of it, if it was willful or if it was oversight, depending on any, any settlement you've done, that very well could be one of the fines or penalties, depending on the severity of what you've done. Gotcha. You know, I was actually trying to purchase a commercial building a couple of years ago, and I noticed that the purchase and sales agreement it costs a lot of money because, you know, you have to review it and it's not just a standard PNA, right? That you can do for residential, right? I could throw out like 5,000 lowball offers on these residential houses, but for commercial it costs a lot. What's the difference between like a commercial purchase and sales agreement versus a residential one? Commercial is often a lot more complicated because there are a number of different factors that you don't get into residential. In San Francisco, for example, many people for residential deals, they'll use the California Association of Realtors form, and it's just become such common practice to use that form. While it's not a standard agreement, and we've had many deals where people will create their own forms, it's so familiar with brokers that they'll just use that form. And while that form works for maybe a residential transaction, and they do produce a form for commercial transactions. It's just, it might be missing items. So in a commercial deal, for example, say it was a retail property, you, you really want to make sure that you have a tenant estoppel certificate and that you've reviewed the underlying lease because a lease for a retail store is going to be a lot different than a small residential lease. And it could be for a much longer period of time. Commercial properties, depending on where they're located, 
you also have a much higher environmental risk because if it's near a gas station, you might have to do a phase one and to look into the environmental risks where if residential property you're buying is in a commercial neighborhood, sorry, residential neighborhood, it's very unlikely that you're going to run into the same type of environmental risks. If, you know, if the retail property was by the gas station or even by a dry cleaners, you have additional risks there. And that's one of the items that's also very much negotiated in a commercial agreement is limitation of liability where the seller wants to limit their liability, not only for any environmental risks and want to push the buyer to do their own phase one and due diligence, but also to limit their liability for any representations and warranties. And in the CAR form, you have very limited reps and warranties while on a commercial deal, you might be representing that you have no knowledge of any environmental contamination regarding mechanics liens, regarding operations of the property. And that's one of the items that could be heavily negotiated in a commercial agreement and may add on to your attorney or advisor's time when they're looking at that back and forth with the opposing side. I remember when I was doing my purchase and sale agreement, uh, we didn't have all our terms ironed out before we got attorneys involved, right? So we ended up doing a lot of redlining back and forth, back and forth, and that costs a lot of money. So when should we actually have the purchase sales agreement created? Should it be after everything's already ironed out with the seller or is back and forth normal? Some back and forth is always going to be normal. For example, I was just working on a industrial purchase in Pennsylvania. And even though the LOI was completely done and buttoned out, there was still some back and forth over the amount of the limitation of liability. Seller wanted to cap their exposure at $300,000 and we wanted a $500,000 cap. So there was some back and forth over that, back and forth over representations, back and forth in terms of timing and notices. But to the extent you can put more details in your LOI, at least of the business terms, you make it easier for your attorney or advisor to actually put that into a purchase agreement and you could limit the back and forth because you've already agreed on the price. You've agreed on your due diligence period and your closing. You've agreed on the escrow and title company. You've agreed on the due diligence materials that your seller is going to provide to your buyer and whether they're going to give you a survey or a phase one. If it's a hundred unit apartment building, how many tenants do they have to get a stopple certificates for? Is it every tenant? Is it 70%? When do those have to be delivered? So I always encourage clients even to get their attorney involved at the LOI stage so that they can help you with any terms that might be missing because at the LOI stage, it's much easier to negotiate than if you've already agreed and you're into a purchase agreement. And it's cost effective as well because it can save time and redlining back and forth between the parties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. LOI is just so simple. You just send it back and forth on a Word document and then they agree with the basic terms. Then you get the lawyer involved to actually iron out every single detail. For example, you, you, you're buying a new property tomorrow and you send it to me and say, hey, Jeff, here's this LOI. Can you take a, a quick look and see if I'm missing anything? And I say, Sean, well, you didn't touch on environmental. Are you going to get a phase one or is 60 day closing? Is that enough to get the loan that you're looking to get on this property? Are you raising money? Are you going to need more time before you waive contingencies and could give you a couple quick ideas that might help save time and money later. And then once the other side agrees, one of the attorneys or advisors will put together the purchase agreement and help guide you through that process. Mm -hmm. You mentioned estoppel certificates earlier. Can you repeat what that, what that stands for? An estoppel certificate is a document that essentially stops a tenant from denying what's written in it. So it, it really applies to any tenant with a lease, whether commercial or even residential. So for example, when I bought one of my multifamily properties, which was a four unit apartment building, I wanted an estoppel certificate from each of the tenants to make sure that the lease I was provided was accurate, that they each had a one year term and their leases were expiring on these dates, that their rent was the amounts that was written in their lease. Because without that, the tenant could come to me after the fact and say, oh no, my rent is not $2,500 a month. That was in the lease. The seller agreed to reduce it to a thousand dollars. I had an oral agreement with him, or an oral agreement where he extended my term to ten years, or this other document was outstanding but it wasn't provided to you. Whatever they list in that estoppel certificate, which is usually the rent, making sure there's no defaults, the term, any maintenance expenses if it's a commercial property, they can't later deny what's in that agreement. So they're representing everything that's in there is true. 
So it's basically like a lease confirmation. Yes. It's important, I think, in any type of real estate that you're doing that, that involves a tenant, single family to industrial, because you need to know what's in the lease is accurate and that there's nothing else outstanding that you may not have seen or may may have been forgotten and not delivered. While you can fight things like that later, is you, want, you always want to avoid litigation and, and costs and paying an attorney or someone else when you don't have to. And that's why it's best to really do your due diligence thoroughly and accurately to make sure you understand the deal and understand the terms of what you're buying before you sign on the dotted line. So speaking of tenants, in San Francisco and Oakland, where developers are purchasing properties, especially multifamily ones, and there's tenants involved, they usually do something called cash for keys, where they pay the tenants to move out. Sometimes it could be $50,000. I've heard stories up to $150,000 to get them to move out. Is there a right or wrong way to do cash for keys? There's not. It's kind of a uh, good size inside with the Ellis Act, which is California's act for being able to demolish or renovate a property that's currently under rent control. And cash for keys goes along with that, where you are paying a tenant to maybe vacate when they have a lease or they're subject to a property subject to rent control and you don't have the right to evict them without cause. And it really depends on the financial terms. If it's worth it to you to pay $100,000 to get certain tenants out because you know that you can then go and raise the rent and increase your cash flow by $200,000. There's no right or wrong number and there's no right or wrong way to do it. You just want to be upfront and know that make sure that you're not bullying or harassing a tenant to try to get them out because then you could run afoul of San Francisco's you know rent control laws and then harassment and, and other items that you don't want to be a part of. Yeah, but you probably can't just go up to them and give them a check for $50,000. There should be some kind of documentation. Do you know what kind of documentation is kind of required to make sure that when they're out, they're out for good and they don't come back and say, hey, no, it's not legit and something like that? Yes, absolutely. So once you had an agreement and you approached your tenant and said, I'll give you $50,000 to vacate your lease, you will want to prepare a lease termination agreement where they are actually signing that their lease has been terminated and they no longer have a right to the property. You'll also want to get a full mutual release to make sure that they do not have any claims against you as the landlord going forward. And to be fair, that you you wouldn't make any claims against them. So those two documents combined would essentially give you the end game for that tenant. They would have no right to the property and they'd have no future claims against you. So once they take that check, that tenant has no no more connection to you or the property. Is there any standard boilerplate documentation for that or is that all custom created by their attorney? There's never usually a standard template. It depends on the specific deal, mainly because each tenant's lease might be different. So you'd have to fill in the various terms. But as a landlord, if you were doing this for multiple tenants, or multiple properties, you could create a essentially a tenant a termination agreement and then fill in the blanks with the business terms for each deal and then prepare a standard release that could be an attachment to that document and then use those documents over for different tenants. And that's one that's one of the benefits of you know, maybe even engaging an attorney is once you have some of these documents, a lot of the upfront costs is kind of universal among different projects that an attorney might provide to you is once you pay the upfront cost, you have that document and that it's much easier to modify the second time around or the third time around. Uh, I've got clients that we've done syndications for and while we did it the first time, the second and the third and the fourth, we've been able to use the same document with proper adjustments and save tens of thousands of dollars by being able to reuse these kind of template documents. Nice. All right. I think that's enough law for today. Let's talk about your investing career. So how did you get started? What was like the first few deals that you did and where did you start investing? I started after seeing clients and seeing clients invest in real estate and just have a passion for real estate. And as I, as I think I said earlier, I always wanted to be a developer. So I, that was my goal to actually go and invest in real estate and develop properties on my own. But when I started being an attorney, I liked the legal side of it. I liked being able to help different clients and different asset classes, you know, small investors, big investors. So while I did an attorney, I wanted to invest as well. And I didn't want to forego that process because for me, my, my investing strategy is I'm a buy and hold investor. So I want to buy a property that's that has good bones and a good location that can have good long-term tenants that I can increase the rent over time and have a steady cash flow with, with really the goal for these to be retirement properties for myself, 
when I'm you know in my 60s. And if I don't want to work on my day job every day, I can rely on the cash flow for these properties and either use that money to retire and then eventually leave these properties to my kids one day. Well, they'll be able to get income from this and hopefully alleviate some of their financial burdens. Uh, what kind of assets have you purchased? Right now, my wife and I are an investment company. We hold solely multifamily. And then I'm a passive investor in other multifamily projects and a number of retail locations throughout the country. Personally, I like multifamily, I think, as probably my favorite asset in real estate because people will always need a place to live. In California, in San Francisco, and even in LA, as, as homes continue to increase in, in value and become more expensive and are there's such a barrier to entry when you're starting a career and, and when you're younger that renting is often the only alternative. So these multifamily properties, they really, they really have longevity and people are always going to need a place to live. And with rents continuing to increase because of California's real estate market, rents are continuing to increase as well, which I think makes them a good long-term buy and hold strategy. And so is that just you and your wife uh, or you're also raising funds for those uh, multifamily investments? Right now, it's only myself and my wife. We have an investment company. Technically, my three-year-old and one-year-old are also members of it. We were able to get them an interest now uh, through kind of creative tax strategies and gifting. So hopefully when this property appreciates in 30 years, they'll have a nice equity interest in these properties right now. I think our goal eventually will be to bring on some outside investors, but for the time being, it's nice to be able to own the property ourselves and not have to answer to investors. But as I've seen with, with clients and kind of learned talking to syndicators and sponsors to eventually grow, you will hit that kind of ceiling when you want to bring on outside investors. And that, that really gives you the leverage to grow into maybe not the four unit property that I was talking about, but into a 20 unit apartment building or a 50 unit apartment building. You know, I think one problem, I don't know if it's a problem per se, but one thing that syndicators love to do is they purchase the property with a five or seven year exit planned. You know, they're, they're basically going to flip the asset. Whereas for your strategy, you want to hold on for it long term, right? If you have investors outside, then you're either going to be partnering with them forever or you're going to sell it in seven years. That's right. So the apartment building that I have, we bought it. It's a four-unit apartment building, two blocks from the beach, and because it's four units and under, it qualifies for residential financing. So, especially with the rates what they are today, we we're able to get a thirty-year fixed. So, eventually, the tenants will pay off that whole mortgage, and it'll be free and clear, or I'll be able to pull out money for the next project. I think when we do bring on outside investors, it will not be such of a, a long-term retirement position unless that's the group of investors, unless everyone is in that same boat, it'll be more your, your five, seven, 10 year value add. Let's buy it. Let's hold it. Let's let the market increase and then go on to another project. So for your own investments, you're saying you're buying basically fourplexes in Los Angeles? The one we just recently acquired last year is in Redondo Beach, which is a coastal beach town, kind of about 20 minutes south of LAX. And that is a buy and hold. And the reason I have that, because I think that's a good property that I could see myself holding for 30 years and just letting it to continue to appreciate. Uh, another property we, we're looking at is, is in El Segundo, which is really being hit by the tech boom um, of Silicon Beach. It's kind of spreading south, but that's a city right south of LAX. That I think has a great five, 10 year strategy where we might add some value to that property take the funds and put it into to maybe to another quad or a five, six, seven unit apartment building. That's awesome. I actually work at North of Bremen and in El Segundo and also in Redondo Beach. So I'm very familiar with those areas. But from what I remember, they are not super cheap. And I don't remember hearing a lot of cash flow stories. Like if we wanted cash flow, we would buy in, let's say, Inland Empire, like Riverside. So if you could share, how are you making these properties work for you? That's a great point. And our property, it does cash flow. You're not getting a lot of cash flow from it. And that's that's the trade-off that we've seen is when you're buying in one of these kind of premier areas like Redondo Beach or Segundo that has the really high tenant demand, it has very high rents, you are going to trade off some of that cash flow for long-term appreciation. Um, there are other, more, not necessarily inland empire, but more inland cities down 
in the LA area, like Hawthorne or Gardena in Torrance, where if you move a little further east, you may be sacrificing a little long-term appreciation, but now you're getting a much higher cash flow and a much higher cap rate. So instead of maybe three and a half or four percent by the beach, you might be getting a, a, a six, a seven, maybe even an eight percent cap rate the further you go east. So it, it is that trade-off. But for myself, for this one, it, it really is a long-term hold that I can see giving to my children. So I'm comfortable giving up some of that cash flow for that long-term appreciation. And when I really want the cash flow, if it's a retirement property, is when maybe 30 years down the road. And by then the mortgage will be significantly paid off, rents will have increased, and my so will my cash flows. Yeah, and in those areas, the appreciation is gonna be amazing. Like a lot of people I know here are trying to invest out of state because they want that immediate cash flow. Because they think, dude, buying a fourplex here in San Jose is probably going to run you 1.6 million or above and rents for maybe 2,000, 2,500 a month. It's like, there's no way you're going to cash flow off that. So yeah, I was wondering what kind of down payment are you putting down on those properties? And like, what kind of terms are you getting on your loan to be able to even break even? For residential properties, if it's a single family residence and you're more than, I think, 50 miles, you can put down less. But for the most part, since I look close to these properties, they're considered investment properties. You typically have to put down 25 to 30 percent of the value of the property. And then you'll able, you're able to get a residential loan. So say 30 year fixed rates slightly higher than if it was an owner occupied property. But I believe the rate that we got for that fourplex was four and a quarter which at the time was pretty good for an investment property. With that, with the down payment and with the ability, I came in and was able to raise raise rents. Some tenants were leaving. So with the added value of increase in rents, I was able to make the numbers pencil where I would have a small cash flow and the property will essentially take care of itself and have enough in reserve to replace the roof when it has to be done and, and do some capital improvements. Yeah, that's awesome that you're able to do that. I remember in El Segundo and Redondo, I believe there was pretty heavy rent control at the time. I'm sure Santa Monica does. Now, of course, we have the AB 1482 where everyone's going to have rent control. But were you ever uh, kind of worried about that, that you're buying places with heavy rent control? I did. And I have stayed out for the most part of the city of Los Angeles because that is our big city that's subject to rent control. Redondo Beach uh, is not subject to rent control. At least it wasn't until the passage of AB 1482. The thing to think about in AB 1482, and I'm familiar with it because we just kind of posted a, an article on it that our clients were interested, is it really hurts investors when you're looking to significantly raise rents. So I was able to get into my building, like I said, a couple of years ago and raise rents. But if I was looking at this building again, some of those rents were raised more than 10%. And because the old owner just, there was some tenants, he hadn't raised rents in five or six years. And while the tenants, they knew they, they were significantly underpaying. If I were to buy that building today, I probably wouldn't be able to make it cash flow because it would take me so much longer to raise rents where they are. So that's something that I'm looking going forward with the passage of 1482 is to see what the rents currently are on these buildings. And if I'm able to raise it five to 8% with inflation, does that get me to market or close to market where I can make the building cash flow? And also to do really due diligence on the tenants and making sure that there's someone that I'm comfortable renting to because the, the 1482 also has the elimination of evictions without just cause. So now if I don't like a tenant or I don't think they're treating the property respectfully or taking care of it. I, ne I can't necessarily get them out unless I have cause under the provisions of the bill. So what does an ideal property look like to you? Again, it depends depends on the market and where you're investing. But for me, at this stage, I like things that I can essentially be probably within, within 10 miles of where I am. I manage the properties myself to save a little bit of cash flow and make it work. So I need it to be close to where I am. I need it to be in a city that I'm familiar with. I need to know exactly what that property rents for uh, just by looking at pictures. So, you know, going in into a different city, I may not know what rents are, are valid or reasonable. Um, and one side of the street might be, there might be a reason why you're getting those rents. And Redondo Beach and El Segundo and those beach cities, 
I know the area. I know the type of people that would be renting those areas. I know what the rents are going to go for. So I'm familiarity with the area. So location, really knowing the, knowing the city. And I think a property that has long-term potential, whether that is a buy and hold strategy for 30 years and you're, you're banking on the appreciation, or if I moved these a property that would give me significant cash flow, still with a smaller appreciation factor that I think would give me an adequate return on my investment. So it would probably be a fourplex in those areas? Right now, I like the fourplex because eventually I will be capped out of them because you can only have a certain number of residential loans that most lenders will underwrite you on. I'd like the 30-year fix because rates are so low right now and commercial rates are even coming down. And in 15 years, you know, I don't know what they'll be. And I remember talking to people my parents' age, you know, my father, who you know, when they bought their first homes, interest rates were 15, 16%. And if rates went to that that level, I don't think they're going to go that high anytime anytime soon. I'm locked in a four and a quarter for 30 years, which means I know exactly how much I need to make the mortgage. I know what the rents need to be. And I'm able to pay that down with, with my cash flow over time and essentially own these, you know, these buildings free and clear or to pull out money with either refinance if rates are sufficient or a credit line and put that towards a down payment towards the next property. What do you think a fourplex goes for in those areas? And what do you think they can rent for either as is or after you renovate? If we're talking about the kind of Redondo Beach, some of the other beach cities are more expensive, but your typical fourplex, again, it would depend. What I typically look is at two bedrooms per each unit. One bedrooms, I feel like you might get a little better bank for your buck with, with the two bedrooms. And three, I often find maybe harder to rent. So two is kind of the sweet spot in the area. The, the price of the buildings will probably range from about $1.6 million to the low twos. Similar, maybe up by San Francisco, maybe San Jose, and the rents you will get anywhere from I'd say twenty three hundred up to about thirty two, thirty three hundred dollars, depending on the quality of the finishes. If it's stainless steel appliances and wood floors, or if it hasn't been, you'd be more towards the lower end if it hasn't been updated in thirty forty years. So it's it's finding the right combination of can I get the right price? How much am I going to have to spend to rehab? what tenants are in there and how long have they been in there. One other thing, and while it doesn't work for everyone, one thing that I've been able to do is uh, I'm actually a licensed real estate broker. So I'm able to, I didn't do it on my last property, but in, in the future, I have the potential to negotiate some of these deals myself and then save on the real estate commission and put that money back into the property in the terms of renovations or put it aside for long-term capital improvements. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool that you're able to invest where you live because, like I said before, a lot of people here have pretty much given up on the idea. They don't have that long-term vision, right? Because I know for sure in the Bay Area, this place is going to keep booming, but they're investing out of state because that's probably what they can afford. That's something that they can see immediate cash flow. And a lot of people are preaching that you should never bank on appreciation. It should always be like the silver lining or whatever. But I mean, yeah, I think it's legit. So props again to you for investing where you live. And I've heard that many times is cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. I 100% agree with that concept, but I do think there, there is something to be said about appreciation and looking back in these areas for you know, 20, 30 years and seeing what has the average appreciation been and where is this area going? And while I wouldn't touch a property that you know has negative cash flow, I don't need to be making 10% returns on 10% on cash flow. I'm comfortable taking a lower cash flow with with that appreciation. And you know, even in this area, there have been buildings that I've liked that have been wholly out of reach um, and just too expensive. So that's when I've entertained the idea of you know a syndication. And can I put together a small group of investors, even family and friends, where maybe we can buy a eight unit apartment building in in El Segundo where rents are just skyrocketing. And I think that area has long-term potential to be able to invest where you live is great. And putting together that group of investors would open up additional opportunities for, for myself to hit maybe larger assets within the multifamily asset class. Nice. Check out Culver City. That place is the best. 
I used to live there. It's amazing. Culver City is booming. That is one of my go-to lunch spots. There are a number of great places and we're, we're, we're pretty close. So we, uh, I am in that area often and you're absolutely right. It has grown tremendously and the quality of the homes and real estate there is just growing. And neighboring cities too. We just did a, a large deal in Mar Vista, which is next to Palms, kind of right by the 405 freeway. And it, it used to not be the best area and now it is up and coming and it's it's almost one of the places to be now after you know santa monica has got so expensive people are going into these you know once kind of quasi second class cities that are are not second class cities anymore even inglewood might be better who knows who knows we'll see what the future has we will cool well jeff thanks so much for being on the show today do you have any last tips before we end our show i think for a real estate investor you know both from a legal standpoint which to opine on and an investor is always have your have a team in place. I've, I think I said that before, and it, you know it may sound commonplace, but I've just seen you know friends and, and people just kind of jump in. I want to invest in real estate. I'm going to buy this house without really knowing the ins and outs of the industry. So, kind of getting that experience, you know, whether it's having a team in place, whether it's listening to to podcasts like yours, going to meetup events, and learning from other similar investors from the mistakes that they've made. You can't put a price on that because you can avoid other people's mistakes and you have a support group to rely on if you have questions or you run into issues that you don't know how to deal with. Nice. And how can people get in contact with you? They can email me at jlove at gibbsgidden.com. That's spelled G-I-B-B-S-G-I-D-E-N.com. Or they can check out our website at www.gibbsgidden.com. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate all the wise words of wisdom that you shared with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. All you need is a signature and consideration for a document to hold up in a court of law. If you're raising money for your deals, make sure you do things legitimately to stay compliant with the SEC rules. And if you're purchasing properties with tenants inside, make sure you have them sign an estoppel certificate to protect yourself. There are a lot of tricky situations involving real estate law, so be sure to have a team in place to make sure you're protected. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. And if you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.